Welcome to But Her Lyrics, the show where we take a deep dive on the meaning and the politics behind each song from the new Warren Women album, Wonderful Hell. I'm Shauna Potter, singer and lyricist for Warren Women, and your host. This episode, the first real episode, we're tackling the album opener, Aqua Tufana. Now, I say real episode because I did release an optional episode zero that sets up the entire season of the show. So check that out if you want to hear all my disclaimers and caveats and a fun interview with my mom, who kind of called me out on being old in the interview, which I didn't really catch until after the episode aired. Did anyone else catch that? Mom, if you're listening, uh, back at ya. Every show will be a little different as I figure out what I'm doing, but in general, first... I'll talk about the lyrics, then check in with any band members, then I'll play any potential interviews with activists or experts on the topic, and then finish out by answering patron questions, reading the credits, and then finally playing the song in question. So let's not waste any time. Let's talk about Aqua Tofana, the first song on the new War on Women album, Wonderful Hell, released October 30th, 2020 on Bridge Nine Records. Okay, so aqua tofana literally means tofana water, and it refers to a poison made in early 17th century Italy by Giulia Tofana. I'm confident I'm not pronouncing her first name right. Uh, but she made it for the purpose of helping women kill their husbands to get out of marriages they could not otherwise escape. Um I believe I came across this little historical nugget in some article from Bitch or Bust magazine, but y'all, I tried to find this magical mention, and I just couldn't. I searched online, I searched all my physical copies, uh, all my magazines, and I just couldn't find where it was mentioned. So I would love it if there's any listener out there that knows what article I'm talking about, it should be from the year 2019, please let me know. I would love to give the author a shout out on Twitter and thank them for helping to inspire this song. So I look at this song lyrically as coming from three different places, right? Like three different ideas. The first, my interest in Aqua Tofana. Uh, the second is just a thought experiment about what would happen if all men died. The third idea it's just me really wanting to rip off the shellac song, Prayer to God. <laughs> it was not my intention to throw these ideas together, actually. But after struggling to write a song solely about Italy in the 1600s, hello, I'm not a historian, and sort of hitting a wall when it came to deciding on the point of view I wanted to express about this global uh, coordinated effort to kill roughly half the population, eventually... I'm flipping around in my lyric book and see that these two separate pages of scribbled notes might share something. They might be able to work together. Since this is the first episode, it's the first official time I will prove that just because something interests me enough to write a song about it, it doesn't mean I'm an expert. So instead of me reading to you the Wikipedia page about Aquatafana, I interviewed Mike Dash, a journalist, author, and historian whose website, A Blast from the Past, specializes in long-form essays where his original research helps explore lesser-known moments in history. And he's got a great one on Aqua Tofana. And luckily for us, he took some time out of his day to chat with me about it. Interview time! Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining me for But Her Lyrics. Uh... Could you introduce yourself to everybody? Yes, uh, my name is Mike Dash. I'm a British historian. Uh, my main focus as a, as a writer is on strange, unusual, marginal events and strange, unusual and marginal people. <laughs> um, what did you think when a random feminist punk band from America reached out to you about doing an interview about Aqua Tofana? I was very excited, although not so excited as my daughter's boyfriend, who has actually uh, listened to some of your music and was ex extremely impressed that you'd even heard of me. So I think oh. I'm one who should be very much sort of honoured by all of this. Oh, so so your daughter's boyfriend is super cool then, I assume, if he listens to us, right? I hadn't realised quite how cool until now. But yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
I found you online uh, just searching for people that had written about Aquatofana. The original source for, for me discovering this little moment in history, I, I have no idea where I read it. And it was a couple years ago and I have no notes. And so I thought, well, instead of me reading off the Wikipedia page about it to my podcast listeners, why don't I interview someone that actually knows what they're talking about? And I found you and I found your site and you write about so many cool like little moments in history that I think could easily be forgotten. And I wondered if the story of Aquatafana is a popular one. Uh, ha it, has it seen an uptick in interest recently? Um, it is one of my more popular ones, oddly, which, which is surprising because it's one of my longer ones. It took me an awfully long time to disentangle the whole story. It's been surrounded by so much uh, rumor and, and, and just sort of incorrect accounts. So that the whole story was something like 15,000 words, which online particularly is a, a lot to ask people to, to uh, tear through. But over the last four or five years since I wrote it, it has definitely been amongst the top six or seven most popular things I've ever written, which wow. is intriguing, I find, because um, it's it's definitely not one of the better known ones, even amongst my not very well known bits of history, it's relatively obscure. So let's dig in. What can you tell us about, well, actually, set the stage for us. What can you tell us about Italy at that time? Well, we're talking about Italy in the 17th century. Um, this is before unification, so it's a patchwork of different territories. Um, Sicily, which is where the story begins, was part of the Spanish Empire at that point and was ruled by a Spanish governor. Um, and Rome, where the story ends, was part of what was called the Papal States. So the Pope at that time had a sort of uh, a temporal role as well as a, a spiritual one. He ruled over um, a large parcel of territories in the centre of Italy. Um, and the church was therefore the sort of temporal governing power and ran the justice system in Rome as well. So it's a it's a an area which is kind of made for, for criminal elements because it's possible to flee from one jurisdiction to another relatively effectively and, and relatively easily. And this is what some of the people involved in the story actually managed to do. And I assume that things were not great for women at the time. Uh, as a historian, I can confirm that things have never been great for women. <laughs> <laughs> you are uh, here first, people. It's official. There's a reason for our band to exist. <laughs> um, I shouldn't be laughing about it, really. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking about a, a very heavily Catholic society to begin with. Uh, we're talking about one in which also, I mean, women are essentially, as they had always been, chattels. They're, they're possessions of men. You're the possession of your father until you get married. Hence the whole idea of giving the bride away by walking her down the aisle. It was meant quite literally in that period. And then you become the possession of your husband. Now, you know, that's not to say that every husband treated his wife as a chattel. Some, sometimes the relationship could work out quite well and the, the couple could be happy. But that was happenstance. The system is set up, essentially. So if the man chooses, he can treat the woman as a, as a servant, as a possession. And she has a, a relatively limited palette of, of options if she's not happy with him. And that, I think, is really where the story begins. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about what Aquatofana is. Aquatofana is supposedly, I need to be careful about this because there are some <laughs> mysteries about this, it's supposedly a poison. It's supposedly a very special sort of poison. Um, it's what's known as a slow poison. Um, now, a slow poison differs from a, an ordinary poison in that, supposedly, it works in a, a slow and undetectable way. It's not as violent as a normal poison. The, the, the chief poison used at this time was arsenic, um, which is relatively easy to get hold of, but has you know, very distinct symptoms. Um, it causes uncontrollable vomiting, stomach pains, uh, nausea, um, extreme dehydration, and so on. Um, the slow poisons, in contrast, were supposedly sort of you know tools of, of deceit, tools of of, of the weaker party and hence obviously yeah, as poisons more generally are tools of women that, that's how they were seen by the societies of the day and the idea was that a slow poison was a very highly concentrated sort of poison which worked in very small doses but over a, a, a longer period of time and with much less violent effects so in fact what would happen is that you could if you could get hold of one of these poisons in theory you could use it to kill an unwanted member of your family a husband for example without being detected. That was supposed to be the, the, the special secret thing about Aquatofana, that you could murder someone and get away with it. 
And was this a unique recipe for poison? Or was the uniqueness in the, the, the story behind it, the presentation? Well, <laughs> this is why I say supposedly, because I mean, you know, it was very widely believed in the 17th century and up until the 19th century that slow poisons existed. The fact is that even now with our much more advanced chemical knowledge, we have no way of concocting a poison that works mm. the way that aquafana is supposed to have worked. I mean, the, the most special thing about all of it is that you could supposedly calculate the dose so finely that you could kill someone exactly when you wanted them to die, a week hence, a month hence, a year hence. And that's simply not possible using poisons that we know of today. So unless you choose to believe that a group of you know poorly educated wise women with no access to modern chemical knowledge could somehow come across a secret that we don't know about we have to assume that there's a certain amount of legend involved huh. in the story. um so many of my lyrics for this song are taken from the wikipedia page like right i'm not above copying and pasting when it comes to <laughs> lyrics and inspiration um but you know something that struck me uh about this story was and, and we'll, we'll let's just put the supposedly caveat on the entire interview how about that from now on like exactly. it's understood it's all supposed okay um what struck me was how long she was able to sell this poison undetected without being caught why do you think that's possible well i mean the, the story is that it's a sort of family business to begin with the poison was supposedly invented in the 1620s by a woman called julia tapana who was a sicilian uh, and she was executed for murdering by poison in Sicily in 1633. That's definitely true. Um, supposedly, again, I, I should have said that, but her daughter, <laughs> uh, a woman who claimed to be her daughter, who was identified as her daughter, um, who um, turned up in, in Rome um, 20 or so years later, using the same recipe and with a, a network of, of, of helpers who were, who were uh, selling amongst other things, it's poison to unhappy wives in Rome. Um, so we're talking about a, a poison that was certainly in use for around about 30 years. Um, and yeah, I mean, the reason why they weren't caught was partly caution, partly because the people who were buying the poison from them had obviously every reason to want to conceal what they were doing, and partly because mm -hmm. of the nature of the slow poison itself, which if used properly, um, was supposed to prevent detection. I mean, in a sense, the better question is why were they actually eventually convicted or or um, arrested rather than how they were able to operate for such a long period of time. Because you know, we're talking about a, a period in which there's really very limited medical knowledge that the main treatment for the sort of symptoms I was discussing earlier is, is just bleeding people. And they get worse rather than better usually. Um, and also, you know, we're talking about a period in which bubonic plague is fairly rife in places like Rome. And in fact, the, the main outbreak of poisonings that we know about, because they led to trials and led to executions in the end of the 1650s, coincided with a serious outbreak of plague in Rome. And that's one of the reasons why they were supposed to be able to get away with it at the time, that the deaths were being written off as being caused by something else. Mm. In your opinion, do you think that most victims of this poison, you know, maybe not deserve to die, but deserved some sort of accountability or justice that just wasn't going to come any other way? Well, there's some truth in that. I mean, it's very hard to know because obviously we're talking about trial transcripts where the people who are on trial for their lives have every reason to, to lie, uh, where the authorities have every reason to want to extirpate women who are doing away with their husbands in, in ways that are not just illegal in, from, the, from the technical point of view, but also, I mean, you know, highly sinful as well. And we are talking about the paper states again. So the, the evidence itself is not going to be very reliable, but certainly there were plenty of cases, testimonies given in court of women who were being beaten by their husbands, maltreated by their husbands, and had been driven to you know, extremes of desperation, essentially, by the way in which their husbands were treating them, and, and by the fact that they had no, no recourse other than to wait for their husband to die, and if that wasn't going to happen through their own hand, that would have to wait so that happened naturally, which might be quite soon in a place like Rome in the 1650s, <laughs> but it was absolutely not guaranteed to be very soon. And so certainly the, the testimony that was given in court was of you know, largely desperate wives who were really being terribly badly treated and were looking for a recourse and were sufficiently desperate for that recourse to be murdered. Does the legend of Aquatafana do you see it having any effects, uh, long-term effects in Italy? Uh, after well, the original time has, period? It has long-term effects more generally because, I mean, it, it became a, you know, a well-known byword 
for you know a, a weapon that women could use to to bring down the stronger sex um, and this is how we see it written about most commonly in the 19th century as you know and, and the words that are associated with the sort of women who are supposed to be using it are, are very telling they're called um, you know medias they're called you know sort of they're labeled as evil they're, they're labeled as, as people who are being you know surreptitious and using women's wiles to to bring down men who should not have been vulnerable to a mere woman <laughs> so absolutely we are you know i mean this becomes quite a major uh, trope if you like in the way in which you know, women who are attempting to escape from bad marriages poor husbands uh, are, are normally labeled and viewed actually and is there anything else uh, you find fascinating about this time period or about Julia Tofana herself? Am I saying that right, Julia Tofana? Yes, uh, my Italian pronunciation is probably better on a par with most people's. Uh, not, not brilliant. Um, Phew. Yes, I believe that's right. Well, I think that the thing that interested me most when I when I really investigated the story is that you know this is really the tip of the iceberg, hmm. in the sense of you know I mean what emerges very clearly is that in most Catholic capital cities, certainly in this period, there was a quite extensive what's called a criminal magical underworld in in operation and i find that particularly interesting because i mean this is this entire criminal magical underworld is essentially devoted to you know servicing the needs of a female clientele who don't normally have access to power so it's not only poisons you can buy you can buy love filters that will cause men to fall in love with you you can buy you know you can have access to the to the need for an abortion for example which again was you know, impossible to get anywhere else and highly highly illegal at the time um, and all of this comes through the sacerdotal power of the church and this is the fascinating thing about it it's not in fact devil worship or anything like that you're using sort of renegade priests who are willing to sell bottles of holy water things that have been blessed in churches and so on and then can then be used in magical um performances which you know were very widely available to women in places like paris and rome um and the way in which people normally got access to aquatofana actually was it wasn't <laughs> You, you just you know, waltz up out of the blue saying you wanted to poison your husband. That would be highly dangerous to you and the person. <laughs> Obviously, normally it was a much more gradual process. You'd meet a, you'd meet one of these wise women who actually had access to a poison by something as simple as you know going to have your fortune told mm. or looking for a love potion. And as they got to know you, they would become aware that you were somebody who might need some of these other services that they offered, and, and they would then surreptitiously offer those services to people who they trusted. So the criminal magical underworld is a fascinating discovery and it seems to be much, much more widespread than we realise. I found one in Rome by researching Aquatofana. Other historians have, have certainly found similar things operating in other uh, capitals like Paris. And I think it would be a really interesting exercise actually for uh, historians to go in search of other criminal magical underworlds in other Catholic cities of this period. Now, did you listen to the song? Did you read the lyrics? I'm not saying you had to like it. I'm just I saying, did you listen listened to, to it? I haven't listened to the song, I did, okay. uh, but I did read the lyrics, absolutely. Okay, is, um, is there anything slightly, that struck you uh, or anything I got totally wrong? Or? Slightly lacking in historical nuance, perhaps, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I'm not trying to write a, write a song that will sort of get, get this across to the audience. I mean, I think that, you know, the thing that struck me about it was the anger. Um, mm. That's something that probably is, is meant to come across to the audience and the, the yeah, this is perhaps something where, you know, you do have something over us mere historians in that, you know, we don't have access to the emotions of these cases nearly as well as we would like to have. Um, you know, the, 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 the trial testimonies are very flat, they're very much matter of fact. People are concealing the emotions that they felt, I think, very, very largely because they're potentially highly incriminating. So I think that the most interesting thing about coming at this from a more artistic point of view is that you probably have access to sort of truths that historians don't have access to. And I, I think that that comes across very strongly from the lyrics that you wrote. Mm, thank you for that. Uh, is there anything you're working on right now that you'd like to share with us? Anything coming up? <laughs> I don't, how suitable would be for, for lyrics for your group? I don't know. My main um, study at the moment, which I'm just finishing off in the Christmas period, looks at sin eating, which is uh, supposedly, again, um, <laughs> a, a custom that prevailed in Wales, which is where I come from. Um, and involved um, sort of reprobate tramps, essentially, who were shunned by the community, being called in at the moment of someone's death. Uh, they were these people who were, you know, sort of again very similar, actually, to the the people who peopled the criminal magical underworld. They were specialists in a certain sort of area, and what they specialised in was removing the sins and dead people, so that they could go to heaven. Um, it seems to be in a sort of remnant of 
Catholic ritual you know, involving purgatory, which had, of course had been abolished with the Reformation in, in, in Britain. Um, and so the, the sin eater would be called in, they would um, put a piece of bread and some salt on the chest of the deceased cadaver, uh, which would be laid out in the, the main room of the house, and they would utter a sort of special prayer, eat the food, uh, drink a draught of ale, and in doing so they would free the, the soul to go to heaven, but take on all of the sins of the person who had died onto themselves. And obviously after they'd done that for a few years, they were in a, in a fairly poor spiritual state themselves, hence the shunning of the local community. So this is, a, this is a, again, a story which, which might or might not have been quite as, as prominent as, as some writers have said. I've been investigating for a few years and I've, I've finally sort of got to the point of being able to write up some conclusions. If you can find a song in that, I'll direct you to the story when it appears next month. Well, I've seen that movie with Heath Ledger. So exactly. I don't well, know how accurate that thing is. They're very inaccurate, but never mind. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a story that's more interesting in many cases than, than the truth really, isn't it? Yeah. And I, because I've seen that movie, uh, Sin Eater is a familiar term to me, and I actually use it sometimes uh, in my life, <laughs> like as, a, as if a real term. But I, I've sort of, um, I'm sure I won't include this in the podcast, but I, I, I've sort of twisted it. And, and so I use it in the sense that if I see someone who is being harassed or mistreated and I need to step in as a bystander, even though I might then be harassed or mistreated, right? I'd get that anger directed at me instead. Um, when I willingly put myself in that position, I sort of think of myself as like, I'll be the sin eater. I'll take that's, it on. That's a, that's I'm in the mood for it. Come at me, bro. You know, like you get to safety yeah, yeah. and I'll take it. So obviously not exactly the same but but no, i think i think of it in that word that term it's a very handy term from that point of view <laughs> good for you absolutely and, and, and whatever it takes to intervene in a situation like that it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing to do yeah um well good luck with, with uh with that research and that project and tell us where we can find you online um you can find me at mike-history.com that's where you found me and that's where i hang out most of the time and there are a ton of cool stories on this website, people. So please check it out, learn a little bit, write your own song <laughs> about something, uh, and then share it with us. All right. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining me on New Year's Eve. Thank it's you. Pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Mike for the fascinating look into 17th century Italy. I learned even more <laughs> about Aquatavana. So in this song, I take on the perspective of one woman looking to kill her husband. Uh, that's how the song starts. And then really quickly, I zoom out uh, to show that this is bigger than me. This is happening on a global scale. So now we're into the second component of the song. The idea that for violence against women to actually end, all men must die. To be clear... I'm not saying I believe that. To even entertain the idea, it's kind of a joke, right? Um, I've mentioned this in interviews for the new album, but it's sort of a response to what I think MRAs and trolls and even just your average dude bro, what I think they assume about our band, right? That they assume a feminist band would want to kill all the men. So uh, for fun, I wanted to take that to its logical conclusion. I do have a backstory to the song, a soft implication, I guess, uh, that whatever organizing body is executing this plan, that they've worked out all the details regarding potential age limits, um, you know, is there a cutoff, uh, are we saving everyone under the age of eight, or, um, or are we just across the board dead? Uh, but, you know, I don't know. And also that they've thought about how this plan affects trans folks, non-binary, gender non-conforming people. You know, they're not transphobic. But I personally have not worked out what those details would be. Part of this is 100% laziness, sure. Uh, part of it is not wanting to be picked up by the FBI. I don't really need a notebook in my house with very detailed plans on how to kill all men. Um, but I guess mostly it's an artistic choice. I didn't want the song to be bogged down with the minutia of a plan like this and distract the listener from feeling this woman's anger, the impatience, the desperation to think that this is the only way 
to stop violence against women once and for all. Before I move on, uh, which we're going to get to banned interviews in a second, uh, let me make it clear that anyone is capable of harm and abuse. And it can happen to anyone. But when it comes to intimate partner violence across all gender makeups of couples, violence is more likely when a man is at least one of the partners in a relationship. But it is a much bigger problem, more complicated and nuanced than I can get into here. So let me say, whoever you are, you deserve a relationship free of violence and abuse. You deserve a healthy relationship. And if you're not sure if what you're experiencing is healthy or not, or if you know that you need help, call the Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E, or visit thehotline.org. <sighs> okay, deep exhale. Okay, let's lighten it up, right? Let's meet the band, War on Women, and hear what they have to say about the song Aqua Tofana. And just need to get my my little questions, my little questions for you. Oh yeah, you got questions. Yeah. It's like an interview. This is a straight up <laughs> interview, Dave Whoa. Cavalier. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. This is a straight up interview. Are you ready? Wow, here we go. I hope I'm prepared. <laughs> I hope I don't embarrass myself. Um, first, I just want you to introduce yourself to everybody. Uh, my name is Dave Cavalier. I play drums in War on Women and uh, Baltimore-based musician. Any other pertinent information? <laughs> um, let's go through uh, each song and see if you've, you've got anything to say about writing it, recording it, just, just anything. So Aqua Tofana. Mm-hmm. Um, Aqua Tofana is... You can pass if you want. Aqua Tofana is... <laughs> Fucking awesome. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorite songs to play. Um, I feel like that song has like uh, like metal cred, if that makes sense. I feel like if there's like some fucking bro who's got like, uh, I don't know. Vendetta against women in bands. Yeah, yeah. Or some fucking like flying V guitar at home. And he's like, I only shred, bro. This band's about to be bullshit. And then we come out and we play Aqua Tofana. He'd be like, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to learn that riff because it crushes, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I love that song. Uh, I love the subject matter of that song, Kill All the Men. We should at least discuss it as a possibility as a society. <laughs> just just leave it on the table as an option yeah. is all we're saying. No, we're being sarcastic, everybody. <laughs> um, but do, yeah, actually, do you remember me talking to you about this song in rehearsal? Yeah. Yeah. You said, what if we did? What would it look like? I was like. <laughs> and what did you say? Do you remember? Yeah, I was like, you'd have to, well, you'd have to be organized. You'd have to like, uh, That's you'd right. have to all get together and like uh, talk about how things were going to run after all the men were dead. Um, you'd have to probably like freeze some sperm or something if you wanted to continue to, you know, uh, for, if you wanted to keep having civilization. Populate the earth. Yeah, if you wanted to yeah. keep populating. Or maybe not. Maybe you wanted to be like, this is fine. We'll just like let this ride out. <laughs> <laughs> We've been here long enough. This earth deserves earth a break. Yeah. It's, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I remember... I remember, uh, I can visualize it. We're in the rehearsal space. Uh, Brooks is there maybe doing something with his pedals like he always does mm -hmm. and just kind of asking you and, and your, your, uh, answer of like, you got to be organized. I was like, Oh, I didn't think about that. I, <laughs> You're like, I, I was, was just like, going to kill them all. <laughs> well, I, I, th I didn't think that you would answer that. I thought you'd be like, well, you shouldn't or, <laughs> or, or, Hey, we're not all that. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, not no, all I, men. I, I thought it would be, uh, yeah, it'd be like, uh, like you'd give me an answer of what society would look like after everything was done. Mm -hmm. But you were like, all right, if you're going to do this, you need a plan. Right. And, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we do. Maybe this song is not about this, uh, potential utopia, right. Which wouldn't, you know, might not happen, uh, anyway, if this, if this 
thought experiment actually got played out. But, uh, but yeah, maybe the song is about like how we get there. Mm -hmm. Like, why are we even getting to this as an option in the first place? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Jen Vito. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, you don't actually prefer to go by Jen Vito. That's just my favorite way to say your name. <laughs> it's uh, like we went to elementary school together. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> like I, I call you Sharon You were one of many Jens that, that needed a last name attached, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what, what should we call you when we see you at shows in the future? I guess you can call me Jenarchy. Okay, Aquatofana. Um, I think I was... Uh, <laughs> more intimidated by that song at first or I just uh I was like it has uh I don't know what you call it like I don't know if it's a minor note or something but it you know it had something I was like oh that's kind of weird <laughs> um and then it grew on it grew on me to be like a you know one of my favorites um I know the band likes that song a lot um but yeah that's a that's a hard hitter hard hitter uh tip kind of like typical Brooks style song or something Brooks Harlan, thank you for joining me. Shauna Potter, thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, well, I, I'm uh, I'm bringing up the lyrics here. Okay. And I've got the uh, sheet music in front of me, so I make sure I don't forget anything. Um, so, Aqua Tofana, um, the writing of that song uh happened relatively quickly um the first riff that starts off the song uh was an older riff that was definitely around pre capture the flag and wow. i could just never figure out how it could fit like it it was part of this much longer sort of metal song that i had written and it, it wasn't even really the main part and listening back through different demos i sort of zeroed in on that riff and really liked it and thought of it standing on its own for the first time and then i know i needed to finish out the song so i remember just being at home and kind of playing that riff and just seeing kind of where my hands would naturally go and so i wrote the you know the song is essentially an a part a b part and a c part and so if that original sort of metal riff was the A part, the B part just kind of came out of that. And then the C part just kind of came out of that, just sitting on the couch, just messing around on guitar. Is that something that you do like while watching TV where your brain is somewhere else? Or are you just concentrating on playing guitar? Uh, I am not allowed to play guitar and watch TV. So that doesn't happen. <laughs> not allowed? Um, no. <laughs> Uh, I wish I could do it more. Too um, annoying for everyone you live with? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> this was me just playing on the couch with nothing else on, just because that's where I was sitting. And I was thinking about that song. And once it kind of came out, I was like, this this is going to be the first song on the record. Like, what a what a great way to start a record. You knew right away. Um, yeah, and I could sort of hear how it would go. And I made I made a little demo, maybe that night or the next day, um, just so I had the parts kind of down the way I wanted them. And then that week, I think you and me and Dave met up. And I kind of showed it to him in practice. And I didn't. This was not a song where I sent him the demo and then he kind of learned it and listened to it. Right. I showed it to him in practice and then we just, we made, I think we made one change and that was his idea. The, at the end of the phrase, the original part went, -na 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 -na. but he suggested, -na 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 -na. Just that little right. change. Uh, I think it was just so he could fit a drum fill in there, in there exactly <laughs> like, I don't know, it is cool. It, it gives a little bigger of a kick. Um, but other than that, the song stayed pretty much exactly the same as the way I wrote it, like the form and the length and 
you know, we I think we messed around with the ending, like how long it should go. Yeah. I think originally yeah. we thought it could go forever and we could fade it out. Like I've never done a fade out song before. And we might have even thought that up until we were recording, but it ended so strongly. Like when we were recording, I remember just landing because it lands on a A flat chord and we all hit it and it just seems so in tune and like so final. And so we kept that and uh, I was real happy about that. And I know that we've had discussions to, you know, maybe that song and and others where how long we do something depends on what I'm singing and, and do I have a bunch of stuff I got to say or, and do I want to repeat it or, you know, and it's um, a conversation between us all to just make sure all the pieces fit. Yeah. I think in this song in particular, that was the case at the end. The, the other sections were pretty much done and i was like this goes this many times this goes this many times and you worked in vocals to that but then we got to the end i sort of had a build-up in mind of when different things were going to start because it what i like about the end is it starts um with one feel and without really actually changing the tonality it moves into a different yes uh riff almost and um, and there were certain building blocks along the way to get that to happen. And so when those happened, I could sort of add to or subtract from um, depending on when you sang things. And uh-huh. and I think we messed around with when you were going to come in with the lyrics and when you were going to stop. And so I'm really happy with the final decision on when those things happen. Um uh, want to move on or was there anything else for that? Well, I mean, I, it depends on how much you want. I could talk about all these songs forever. I mean, um, do you have any memories in the studio of recording Aqua Tofana? There's a, there's a couple little things in the song that I actually added in the studio, like little guitar overdubs that didn't exist before we went into the studio. And that's sort of rare for me. I tend to pre-plan guitar parts quite a bit. But sometimes, such as in this song, in the B section, um, there's like a little guitar harmony that's sort of Slayer harmony. It's like parallel fourths. And I just didn't feel like it was being reinforced quite enough. So I added another little overdub that instead of going, because uh, the, the normal part goes, but I wrote a little thing that goes dun 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 um and it's just tucked in the mix a little bit um so it's not it doesn't sound like a solo um but I really like the way it reinforces that and subsequently um as I think about playing these songs live I actually sort of came up with a way to sort of amalgamate those two parts. And so I'm actually playing the guitar part differently there live, or I will be playing it live than I recorded it. Um, So that's sort of interesting. Suzanne Warner, thanks for joining me today. What's up, Shauna Potter? Hi, I miss you. I miss you too. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yep. So that song's awesome. Um, uh, It is really fun to play uh it's like so the beginning slayer part is like it's like <laughs> you know it's it's it like it's like it's it's not it's it's fast you know it's like it's it's not that hard it it's but it's like it's it's fast you know but then when it goes into that kind of i don't know i call it the led zeppelin part you know um that part it's like so cool like i don't know it's just like such a good groove you know like yeah um i actually uh didn't know the shellac song oh really yeah uh my brother actually i think was like oh, is this ba- i think it was like either my brother or like josh reynolds was like is this like like a nod to that shellac song and i was like oh, i don't know what shellac song and then and then I looked and I was like, oh, uh, I would say probably yes. 
Did what did you think of what did you think hearing that shellac song after hearing Aqua Tofana? So I thought it was like really cool. I was like, that's cool. That's like a kind of like one of like I was I don't know. I said this like on the on the album release live stream. It's like there's like references that like you don't need to get, but if you do get them, they're even better, you know. And that's like definitely one of those. Thank you for the segue, Sue. Okay, let's talk about that shellac song. Prayer to God, written by Steve Albini, uh, who's been quoted as saying that that song examines the different facets of impotent male rage. He says, I feel like there are dudes not getting it who think I am voicing their deepest thoughts when I'm trying to expose a fundamental weakness in a male identity. I won't play the song, go search for it, but basically he's asking God, who he assumes will be sympathetic to his request, to kill his ex-girlfriend and the man she cheated on him with. He talks about how he wants them to die, and he grows impatient about the way in which they're going to die, and eventually is like, just kill this guy already, all right? Kill him, kill him, kill him already, kill him. That's the part I stole. Why did I steal this? Well, this is a song that was on regular rotation at Big Crunch Amp Repair, where I've worked for the last 12 years. Uh, you know, sometimes in a workplace, there's just those same records uh, or playlists that everybody gets into, and this is just one of those albums. Uh, so I've always wanted War on Women to cover it in some way, you know, either as is and just kind of flip the script a little bit um, or rework it to be about Trump or something and perform it at some festival or even a two minutes to late night performance. Um, or I wanted to steal the lyrics and that's what I ended up doing. So it turns out the best opportunity to do something with this song was to use him as a placeholder for all men in this song's fictional reality. I have no idea if Steve Albini would like what I've done with it, uh, but everyone listening, please feel free to bombard him with a link uh, so we can find out. <laughs> Big thanks to our official sponsor, First Defense Krav Maga, outside of DC in Virginia. They're offering as much online content right now as they can, so please check them out if you're in the area. You can also sign up to be a sponsor on my Patreon page, FYI, if you've got that kind of cash. Uh, it really does help, and we'll give you a shout-out on the show. Um, speaking of, one of the recruits has another question for me to answer on air. Okay, so remember Stefan and Yulina from episode zero? Well, Yulina came up with another question. She asks... Do you only write when you are inspired, or do you sometimes force it or do it just under pressure? So I don't believe in writer's block. And I say that to explain that wherever inspiration comes from, however small, uh, I'm always writing it down. I have my lyric book on me at all times. Uh, I also have a phone now, so I can just put it in the notes app. But I write things down all the time, even if it's just a word or a phrase. Uh, so that I can reference it later and, and use it as I need it. And every so often I get lucky enough that a full song kind of just comes out of me at once. Um, but that's a little more rare. Um, so the only times that I'm writing a song and I feel kind of forced is when there's a deadline, right? Um, it's happened just a couple times where, like, for The Ashes Not the End, which will get to eventually in this season. Um, the first time we recorded that song, um, it was to put it out on Adult Swim single series. And so we wrote the song specifically to take part in that series. Uh, so we needed to hurry up and get it done and get them the song. Um, and I just did my best to make the song make sense. Another time, it would be basically any time that we're a few days away from recording. Uh, by the time we go into the studio, I've probably finished 90% of the lyrics, but there's always some song that just isn't coming to me quickly enough, and I save it for last, and then it's all I have to deal with, and it can be frustrating. So on this record, that song was Seeds, 
And, you know, one of the ways I got out of this potential writer's block was to interview friends and talk to them about what I thought the song would be about and just hear what they had to say and and write I just wrote down anything that they said that was interesting to me, and I totally ended up using it. Um, so I try to vary the way that I'm inspired to write lyrics so that I never feel, even if I have a deadline, even if I'm under pressure, I never feel like I'm just completely stuck long answer there, uh, but that's the answer. Uh, we also have a question from Melissa, one of my meatheads on Patreon. She asks, if you could recommend one thing an average person could do to promote safer spaces, what would it be? This is a really good question, and I don't know if I can tell you one thing. I guess probably the most important thing and the first thing would be to observe Pay attention to what's going on around you. Pay attention to people that might look uncomfortable. Um, see that everyone is having a good time or not. Um, and then just know that if not you, then who? Right? If you don't do or say something, who else is going to do it? So that means that the thing you can do is one of the five D's of bystander intervention. And I go into full detail about that in my book, Making Spaces Safer, but I didn't invent the five D's. And you can Google it. Uh, I recommend checking out the Hollaback website, iHollaback.org, and finding it there. Um, but these five D's of bystander intervention will work for you no matter what the situation is, your safety level, your personality type, right? How comfortable you are confronting someone, your size, whether or not you look like the person being harassed or the harasser. Um, there's, there's a D for every situation. Uh, and just real quick, the Ds are direct, delegate, distract, delayed, and document. So check out what those are and, and then just have, you know, practice conversations with the people in your life to see what it might sound like if you had to use one of the five D's in real life, right? Like practicing really helps get over the clunkiness that can happen when you're trying something new for the first time. So I highly recommend practicing. Um, I really believe in that. That's why, you know, the book that I wrote on Safer Spaces didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of training venues, training people in person for like six or seven years, um, because that is what helps people really do a good job instead of just, uh, you know, put up a poster and hope for the best. Um, so practice, practice, practice. That was episode one of But Her Lyrics. Keep listening to hear Aqua Tafana in full. Look for the next episode in around two weeks. Uh, it will be a doozy. I'll be speaking with Carol Adams, author of The Sexual Politics of Meat, in reference to our song Milk and Blood, track two from the brand new full-length War on Women album, Wonderful Hell. You'll get the most out of this podcast by listening to each song in advance, but I will be sure to play it at the end of each episode. Wonderful Hell is available on vinyl from Bridge Nine Records, digitally, from Bridge Nine and Bandcamp, and it's streaming in all the usual places. Big thanks again to Brooks Harlan, WOW guitarist and engineer extraordinaire, for all the editing help, and for chopping up our song Her to create the podcast's theme song. If you'd like to support this podcast and this band, there are a ton of ways to do it. Share, subscribe, and review this podcast. It helps. Buy War and Women merch from b9store.com, shirtkiller.com, or in the UK and Europe, you can order through Cortex Records and lhpmerch.com. Uh, you can find all these links in the show notes on my website, shaunapotter.com. You can buy my book, Making Spaces Safer, on akpress.org or from your local independent bookstore. And it's now available in Spanish from Orsini Press out of Spain. Check out Big Crunch Amplifier Service and Design, our guitarist Brooke Shop. He can fix your gear if you live near Baltimore or design and build a tube amp or pedal of your dreams. 
You can also join my Patreon and help me keep this pod going. Join in at the seeds level at only a dollar a month or donate more to get tons of perks like merch, a behind the scenes look at making the podcast, exclusive meandering conversations with people I think are cool and more. Thanks for listening.